Well, thank you, Gene, for being with us today. Well, when I was a junior in college, way back in 1976, uh, my roommate was a guy named Mike. Now, Mike and I had been assigned to room together because we both had been selected as what was called hall counselors at our school. That is, we were responsible for a whole floor of freshman guys. So when we became roommates that fall, we didn't really know each other that well. But late in that year, in the spring, when we had gotten to know each other pretty well and become friends, um, sometime after midnight one night, <coughs> um, he was in his bed on one side of the room, and I was in my loft. My bed was like up on stilts. So we could put our couch underneath it, you know, the way college kids do. It was after midnight, and um, he piped up and he said, Hey, Roro. That was my nickname in college because my middle name is Roland. Please don't call me that. But he said, Hey, hey, Roro, are you still awake? And I said, Yeah, what's up? And he said, I think God really messed up. And I was like, surprised because I'd never heard him talk about God before. We didn't kind of have those conversations. He said, I think God really messed up. And I went, Hmm? And he said, yeah, um, he really messed up when he made two sexes. And I, and I was getting a little concerned. And he said, he really should have made just men. And now I was really surprised. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, everybody knows us guys get along great. We, we play sports. We watch movies. We have fun. We get along. We have, we're, we're great together. And everybody knows girls don't get along at all. They gossip about each other. They catfight all the time. And when guys and girls get together... This happens, he said. And what he's referring to is that we'd both been through breakups and relationships just in the past week or so. So he said, if he's God, that means he can do anything he wanted, right? So he should have just made men. And when we needed to reproduce, we should have just like butted another little guy off to the side. He should have made just men. So God really messed up, he said. Now I start with that story. I don't recall how the conversation ended. I really don't. Um, but I mentioned that little story because while he was sort of joking, we now live at a time and in a culture where many people kind of agree with my old friend Mike that God messed up, or at least that what we find in the Bible is kind of messed up. We're in a series now, continuing a series called The Gospel in Genesis. And last week, we were in Genesis chapter 2 and saw that God formed the man Everything else he spoke in it existed, but he formed the man, breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living creature, a living soul. And that's good news because it means we were created for a relationship with our Creator. Then we said that, saw that God planted a garden for the man to live in, a garden full of abundance and beauty. And that's good news as well because that's a picture of the abundance and beauty that Jesus even now promises us, those of us who believe, and he's preparing a place for us. And then we saw that God also gave a command in the garden, that he placed a limit at the center of the garden. That is, you can have every tree in the garden for food, except you may not eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of that tree, you will die. And we saw that that's also good news, because God's limit is always an expression of his love and is for our flourishing. Now today we're in Genesis 2 again. We're going to begin in verse 18 and read an extremely important and formative passage you can open your Bibles to Genesis 2 or watch on the screens as we put the words up there. <coughs> Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I'm going to point out three gifts that I think are in this passage today. The gift of woman, the gift of marriage, and the gift of innocence. Let's begin with the gift of woman. Uh, For the first five years of uh, our married life, I kept our checkbook uh, because we just assumed that that would be my responsibility because I was the husband and we didn't really talk about it. I just kept the checkbook. But what my wife did not know when we got married was that throughout my single years, and I was single until I was 28, um, I had developed a rather streamlined way of keeping my checkbook. That is, um, when I wrote a check for something, and back in those days we wrote checks for almost everything. Remember checks? We used to write checks a lot. Um, when I wrote a check for, say, a frozen pizza, let's say it was $5.29, I would just round it to the nearest dollar when I entered it in my checkbook. So that became $5. And if I bought something else, say something that cost $5.79, I would round that up to the next dollar, which was $6. It just made the math so much easier. I figured my bank would just keep it all straight. So that's what I did when we got married for five years. I don't remember exactly how Lorene discovered my system, but when she did, she decided to go back and open up five years of unopened bank statements that I had in boxes. I kept them. You know, I was responsible. I kept them. And she went through five years of unopened bank statements. And when she did, she was just wanting to know our financial truth, right? She found out that we had $700 of interest that I didn't know about. I told her, see, my system works. (laughs) And she's kept our checkbook ever since. Uh, You could say that God gave me a wife to save me from financial ruin. Verse 18, notice. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Do you see the abrupt change, the shocking change, really, that happens in the biblical narrative here? I put it in red so you would notice. What do you notice? Say it out loud. Something's not good. Yes, 10 different times in Genesis 1, God said, It is good. And the last time he says, It is very good. But here he says, It is not good. Let me ask you, how could this be? How could it be not good, right? Adam is in the Garden of Eden. He's in paradise. He has everything he could ever need and a perfect relationship with his creator. But God still says something is not good. What Genesis is telling us here is that God created Adam in his image with the capacity for relationships for relationship with him, first of all, as creator and God, but also with a need for community, with a need for relationships with other beings who are like him. Now, I'm going to take a parenthesis here and go off to the side for a moment. 
A word about those who are not married. Now, we all see where this text is going. You heard me read it. It's heading toward the establishment of the covenant of marriage. We're going to get there in a few minutes. But we need to understand that Genesis here is not saying that singleness is not good. He's not saying that. The Bible nowhere says that being single or unmarried is to be incomplete. Those who are not married for any reasons, maybe never married, maybe divorced, maybe widowed, are still invited into a personal relationship with God as creator. Those who are not married uh, have, still have a need for community with others that is met in friendship, and for believers is met in the fellowship of the body of Christ, the church. Think about it. Jesus himself was never married. He lived a celibate life. The Apostle Paul was single at the time he wrote uh, the New Testament letters. So when Genesis says, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, almost forgot, Paul is writing and he basically says, if you're married, good, stay married. If you're not yet married, that's also good because you can put more of your time and effort into serving the Lord. It's good too. So when Genesis says it's not good for the man to be alone, it's simply saying that we as human beings were created by God to have relationships with other human beings. That is, we need community. And yet, Genesis is also saying that marriage, this covenant relationship between a man and a woman, is absolutely central to the problem of aloneness. In fact, it's the only way for human community to ever exist, when you think about it, because a man and a woman sharing an intimate relationship is the only way human beings share in the creation of life. So both those things are true. And by the way, ultimately, uh, did you know that in heaven we're all going to be single? Because in heaven we will be united with Christ as the bridegroom. We are his church, the bride, and marriage will no longer be necessary because we will have that intimate relationship with the one who loves us. More, more on that in just a bit. So God says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I want to spend some time right here. This phrase helper suitable, it's that way in the New International Version, which I'm using today, has been translated in many ways in different Bible translations. For example, in the ESV, it's a helper fit for him. In the King James Version, it's a help meet. Uh, in the New Living Translation, it's a helper who is just right for him. And it's often been understood as the woman was created as a kind of domestic servant for the man, right? To cook and clean and have his babies. I want, you to say, I want to say right off the bat here, I want you to see clearly that that is a terrible misunderstanding of what this phrase me means in the ancient Hebrew and in the culture of the time. Let me try to explain. This phrase is two words in Hebrew. Konegdo ezer. I thought you might have fun seeing what it looks like in Hebrew there. I can't read that, but we translated this in, in our language as konegdo ezer. I want to take the second word first. Ezer. Ezer is a word in Hebrew that means one who helps. But helps in our culture, in our language, is a bit of a soft word. Uh, this word in Hebrew means more of a sense of rescuing, of reinforcing, even saving. And throughout the Old Testament, almost 80% of the time, this word is used for God himself. Psalm 33:20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help. Ezer and our shield. Psalm 70, verse 5, but as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help. 
my Ezer, and my Deliverer, Lord, do not delay. Then if we look at the New Testament in John 16, where Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Greek there is parakletos, which can be translated as advocate or helper, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So this is not helper in the sense of a kind of domestic servant. This is helper in the sense of an ally in battle, a defender, a rescuer, a hero. One of my boys, uh, our third son, Micah, uh, a couple years ago when he was in college, he went to the University of Minnesota, he was driving back in his truck after Christmas break. Weather happened to be bad. It had snowed the day before. It was super cold. And so he was heading back north through Wisconsin. And a couple of hours after he left, he called me and said that he had skidded off the road into a ditch on, on, on I, I think, I-94 going north. Uh, he was okay, but he said, I can't get back on the road. I'm stuck. Uh, my car won't move. And so I said, well, just call AAA. We have AAA membership and see if they can come pull you out. He said, okay. So, but about uh, 15, minutes, 15 minutes later, he called and said, okay, he said, I called AAA, and they're coming, but it's going to be about an hour, so I'm just going to keep my heater going, turn the car on and off so I can stay warm. I said, great, okay, they'll, they'll get you out. And while he was talking to me, I heard, I heard a voice kind of in the background yelling something, but I couldn't make out what it was. And my son said, hey, hold on, Dad, I'll call you right back. Someone's here. I hang up, I don't know what's happening. A couple, about 10 minutes later, maybe, maybe 15 minutes later, he calls me back again. So it's like the third call. He says, you won't believe what happened. While I was talking to you, while we were waiting for AAA, this lady drives up in a giant pickup truck, parks on the, on the shoulder, and hollers to me from the window saying, hey, you need help? And he says, yeah. And she gets out of the truck. She's wearing a Green Bay Packers jacket. She drags cables out of her pickup truck, crawls underneath his truck in the snow, hooks him up, and drags him back out onto the road. And I said, that was a woman. But actually, that's the word azer. She was a rescuer, a helper, a defender, a hero. That's the word God uses for the woman. The second word here is just as interesting. Connecto, translated as suitable or fit for, literally means in front of or opposite to. So if you put those words together, Pastor Tim Keller says, we get something like, I will make a helper like opposite him. Does that make sense? I will make a helper like opposite him. That is, I will make a helper who is like him, but different from him. And what that brings to my mind is a puzzle. Anybody here like to do puzzles? This is the table in our house right now. Um, my wife and daughter-in-law, our, our son and daughter-in-law, have been living with us for the last three months with their two little girls because they're looking for a new house in Batavia. But my wife and the daughter-in-law like to do puzzles. They started doing the puzzles over Christmas time, and they, they keep doing them. They keep starting a new one and doing them. And I, I just can't do it. I, I'll, I'll go by, I'll sit down, and I'll stare at those puzzle pieces, and I get completely overwhelmed. I, I just can't, I don't have that kind of patience. But they do. They like puzzles. Genesis is describing man and the woman, the man and the woman, as kind of like two puzzle pieces. They are the same. Take two pieces out of that puzzle. They're the same, but they're different. And if they weren't different, they couldn't fit together. But because they are different and they are the same, they fit together. They're made for each other. Verse 19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. 
He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now what's going on here? Why does God go from talking about a helper suitable for Adam and then parade a whole bunch of animals by him and get him to name them? I found this little etching from 1743. Adam with a strategically placed foliage naming all the animals. You ever think about how long that might have taken? And how did he come up with names? We were, we were laughing about this at the preaching team this week. Like, that's a lot of names to come up with. We imagine that maybe he started creatively, you know, like elephant, duckbill, platypus. But after he got tired, he just got, like, fly. <laughs> you know, like what it does, right? So why does God do this? At least two reasons, I think. First is part of Adam's work. Remember, Adam had work to do in the garden. It was tending and caring for the garden, and I think that included the animals. This was his way of exercising dominion over the creation that God had invited him to have dominion over. But also, in seeing and naming all the animals, from the aardvark to the zebra, Adam would see that none of them was like him. Now, some scholars even suggest that God would have shown Adam that the animals came in pairs, male and female, so he would notice he did not have a female counterpart. We don't know if that's true. The Bible doesn't say. Simply put, none of the animals were suitable because they weren't made in God's image. They didn't have the breath of life breathed into them. Into them. They were not like Adam. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, there's something else in English here we can't quite see, uh, but there's a new verb used here that isn't used in Genesis 1 uh, before. And it says, the Lord God made a woman. The word translated made is the new word. It's bana in Hebrew, which carries the meaning of more like to build something. In the Old Testament, it's used referring to building a city or building a tower. It actually carries the sense of God adding something to the rib he's taken from Adam. So he takes something from Adam, then he adds something that doesn't exist yet, and he builds the woman. It's a pretty cool thing to think about. And then notice this. What did Adam use to form the man? You remember back from a couple weeks ago? The dust of the ground, dirt, right? He formed Adam from the dust of the ground. He made him from dirt. What does God use to make the woman? The man, part of the man. Why? Did God run out of dirt? He didn't have any more? No. I think he wanted to eliminate any possibility that the man would ever see the woman as inferior to himself. I said, well, you must have come from worse dirt than me. You came from a poorer quality of dirt. No, because she came from him. She came from what was him, and then God added to that. Ephesians 5 makes sense here because Paul tells us, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself because She's made out of him. 18th century Bible scholar Matthew Henry puts it this way. The woman, Eve, was not taken out of Adam's head to top him. 
neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Now I would add that this, this little passage here would be revolutionary in the ancient world in which Genesis was originally written, where women had little or no value in culture other than to have children, where women were most often seen as the property of men, this would have been revolutionary. And then we see that God brought her to the man. He made her, built her, and brought her to the man. This makes me think of one of my favorite moments in a wedding ceremony. I do lots of weddings, uh, and my favorite time is... I'm standing right down there, and the father and the bride come walking in, finally. Everybody's been waiting. Father and the bride come walking in. It's this high moment. And everybody stands and turns to watch the bride. Everybody's watching the bride. But I don't look at the bride. I look at the face of the father of the bride. And then I turn and look at the face of the groom who's waiting right there. That's a special moment. The face of the father as he prepares to give his daughter to a man and the face of the groom. Who's, everything about his face says, this one is for me. That moment. So that's the first thing we see, the gift of the woman. The second thing we see here in this text is the gift of marriage. The gift of marriage. Um, like I said, I do lots of weddings as a pastor. Some time ago now, probably 10 or 15 years ago, I was doing a wedding for a young couple. And as always, I met with the couple several times, and we had uh, gone through in detail what the ceremony was going to be like, gotten to know them a bit. Um, and so I told them that when it came to the vows, uh, there was one portion of the vows that they would follow me and, and just repeat what I said. And then in the question of consent, uh, they had to remember two words. The only thing they had to remember on their own at all in the whole ceremony was two words. You know the words, right? I do. So when I ask you this long question, you just say, I do. The rest I'll lead you through. So we get to the ceremony, and I could tell right from the beginning, from the time I, I met him in the, in the lower level we walked up, the groom was just super nervous. Young guy, excited, but super nervous and uptight. I mean, he, he was kind of white-looking, clammy, sweat on his forehead. So I was, I was, I was kind of worried about him. Um, and he was that way all the way through the ceremony. He was just nervous and, and, and distraught. And we get to the, to the vows, and I'm asking him the long question. I start with the groom. I'm asking him the long question. Do you promise to you know, love and cherish? And, and I glance up at him in the middle of the vows, and he, his eyes are big like this, and he looks terrified, like panic-stricken. But I have to keep going. I can't stop. So I, I get to the end and ask the question. I finish the question. I look at him. He looks at me, he's like a deer caught in headlights. And I can tell he has no idea, brain completely empty, no idea what to say. He cannot remember those two words at all. His bride looks at him like, dude. <laughs> and there's this uncomfortable pause, and then he blurts out, most definitely. <laughs> and I said, okay, that'll work, that'll work. Verse 23, the man said, this is now, I'm going to pause there, because we can miss this again. In Hebrew, this is a, a declaration. The, the language is like exclamation points before it and after it, all over the place. Remember, Adam's been looking at animals for who knows how long. Been giving them names, 
and no suitable helper is found. Nothing is like him. Now God brings him the woman, and Adam is like, this, this is what I've been waiting for. This is like me. This one is for me. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. These are the first human words recorded in the Bible. And it's a poem. It's an ancient poem. It's a song. Adam bursts into song. I think Adam needed a helper suitable for him for at least four reasons. First, to be by his side as an equal partner uh, before God and, and, and to help him with his work. Okay? Equal partner to help him in his work, like keeping his checkbook. Uh, to be with him as one who is like him but different from him, bringing him strength he did not have alone. Thirdly, to be fruitful and multiply. It was God's command to share in God's creation of life. And lastly, to cause his heart to sing. Verse 24. Now we understand this verse. That that I've just shared with you, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now this is the introduction of a theme that will carry us all the way through the story arc of the Bible, if you look at it. The theme is the covenant of marriage. Marriage is introduced here in Genesis. It continues through the prophets as a picture of God's covenant love for his people. It's picked up in the Gospels when Jesus turned water into wine at what? A wedding celebration. He compares the kingdom of God to a wedding banquet, refers to himself as the bridegroom. In Ephesians 5, Paul compares marriage to the relationship of Christ and his church when he writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in the great book of Revelation, at the end of the story, we see heaven itself described as a wedding celebration. Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. By faith, we are the bride of Christ as the church. By faith, a, a great wedding banquet is being prepared even now, and we will be joined to him in perfect purity, glory, and joy forever in the new heaven and new earth. That's our promise. Now notice these three phrases or words. It says, a man leaves his father and mother. Uh, that's leaving behind the home and family he grew up in in order to establish a new home, a new family with new boundaries. Then be united to. This means to cling to, to hold fast to, to be joined together in an exclusive relationship. This is the covenant promise of marriage. Just as God covenant promises his love to his people to love them faithfully forever, so marriage is a holy promise, a holy covenant. And then they become one flesh. This refers to physical union, obviously, which allows a man and a woman to share in God's creation of life, but it means more than physical union. Flesh here refers to the totality of a person, physical, emotional, spiritual, intellectual. This is the intimate bond that makes two one, the unbreakable, lifelong union of marriage. Now I want you to notice the order, the sequence of those words in that one sentence. First, there's a leaving. This implies uh, a certain level of, of maturity. Then there's be united to. This implies making the covenant promise. Then there is one flesh. The two become one in every way, but only when the covenant promise has been established. 
Now, this is the foundation of marriage, the marriage covenant, and it's the only definition of marriage in the entire Bible. It's the only definition we have. One man and one woman in a lifelong covenant. Notice the boundaries that God has established for us. In the garden, he said, there's a boundary around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours. And marriage, the same thing. There's a boundary around it that's for our good and for our flourishing. The primary limit being that physical union is reserved and protected by the boundaries of the covenant promise. This way, in this way, the covenant protects the woman from becoming just another piece of property that can be tossed away. The covenant protects children by providing them a sturdy and st- and a family around them. Now, we all know that many, many people in our culture, maybe most people, I don't know, have questioned and maybe even rejected this definition with its limits, or at least they want to redefine what marriage is. Many no longer respect the boundaries that God has set forth. Some don't even see marriage as necessary at all in our culture. And some think God's definition that I've just gone over with you is actually dangerous and harmful. Let me make a comment here. Our culture, the cultural narrative is um, that many don't really believe or want what God has described here. But I believe if I were to have a random conversation with someone in a coffee shop or at a fitness center, even someone someone doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe anything that I just said about marriage, if I ask them, what do you most want in a relationship? What do you most want in a relationship? Almost every person would say, whatever their spiritual background, whatever they think, they would say, well, I want someone who will who will love me and value me and be faithful to me forever. And I would say, that's what God wants for you too. That's what God wants for us. Now, God doesn't force us to trust his boundaries. He doesn't force us to live inside his boundaries. He simply provides them and asks us to trust that his boundaries are good because he loves us. That leads me to the third thing we see in this passage, and I'm calling it the gift of innocence. The gift of innocence. We have a, I mentioned my son and daughter-in-law are living with us now with their two little girls, and the older one is almost two and a half. Her name is Emery, and she loves uh, bath time. They call it tubby time. So every, every night she goes up, parents give her a bath, and then inevitably, almost every night, she comes running out in this little, little loft we have, stark naked. You know, little kids. She runs out, and she starts dancing around, I'm naked, I'm naked, and, and, we, and we just all we cheer for her and everything. <laughs> and it's so cute, right? It's just so cute. Just completely free, no self-consciousness whatsoever. And I always think two things in that moment. I think, I wonder how long she'll do that, <laughs> right? The other thing I think of is this verse in Genesis. Genesis 2.25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What is shame? Here's the definition. Shame is a feeling of embarrassment or humiliation that arises from the perception of having done something dishonorable, immoral, or improper. And you notice that people who experience shame almost always try to hide 
what they feel ashamed about. We've all seen the news stories where somebody's being arrested and they, they cover themselves up as they're being dragged into the, the squad car. That's a picture of shame. In a couple of weeks, we get to Genesis 3. We're going to look at exactly where this shame started and why we hide. But here we're seeing that Genesis is telling us God does not want us to live with shame. He does not, did not intend us to know what shame is. God wants us to have the great gift of innocence. He wants us to live not in an awareness of our disgrace, but rather in the gift of His grace. And that's good news because it points us to Jesus, the one who came to bear our sin and our shame so that we can receive that gift of grace. Listen to these words from Jude in the New Testament. It's a benediction, really. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, listen, without fault, without shame, and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. So, back to my old roommate in 1976. Did God really mess up? Genesis 2, just a messed up ancient mythology that we no longer should relate to. I came across this study recently. I couldn't wait to share it with you. In a recently released study on sexual behavior by the Wheatley Institution involving data from 11 countries, thousands of thousands of couples, including the U.S., it found highly religious couples who share a common faith report more satisfying intimate relationships than their secular peers. Furthermore, the study reports that women in highly religious relationships, that is, couples who pray together, read scripture at home, and attend church, were twice as likely as their secular peers to say they were satisfied with their intimate relationship. And the men in these couples were fully four times as likely to report being satisfied as men in relationships with no religious activity. My obvious takeaway from this research Go to church. <laughs> I couldn't wait to say that. Did God mess up? Is the Bible hopelessly out of touch with the modern world? Is the biblical, biblical view of marriage too narrow? And does it rob us of pleasure and joy? No. God's design is good. God's boundaries are good and in our exp an expression of his love for us and are intended for our good. And that's why we're hosting the Good Design Summit next Sunday uh, to understand more fully the beauty and goodness of God's design and how to share that goodness with our neighbors without anger, without condemnation, who might not agree or understand because they need to know the good news, the good news of God's design. Let me pray for us as we close. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for creating us with and for the great gift of relationships with you and with others. We thank you as well for the gift of marriage and for the boundaries you place around it for our good. Remind us that even this great gift is not the greatest gift, but the covenant promise of marriage simply points us to your great covenant promise to us, the good news that through Jesus we are delivered from sin and shame and will be united with him in new life, now and forever. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Our benediction today comes from the same passage I read moments ago from Jude, verses 24 and 25. 
to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Have a great day.